Hello and welcome to another episode of the Surgical Society podcast with myself Frank Davis as your host. Please make sure to follow and rate this podcast. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Mr Henry Marsh. Henry is a retired neurosurgeon who has published three books, Do No Harm, Admissions of a Brain Surgeon and And Finally. He worked in London for the majority of his life, operating on some of the world's most complex brain tumours. Whilst retired now, he still visits Ukraine to offer his services to them. His most recent book, and finally, is an honest reflection of himself and his life after being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Hello, Mr. Henry Marsh. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Surgical Society podcast. Thank you very much for being here today. No worries. So uh, I'd like to start off this uh, podcast with a few quick fire questions before we get into it. So at the moment, are you binging anything on TV? I think not at all. Not at all? No. Any particular no. reason why? Haven't, haven't got the time, I think, probably, is the answer. I'm very busy. Okay. And I'm usually reading in the evenings. Not always, or working in my workshop in London. Sure. And are you, um, maybe I should ask, are you reading a particular book at the moment? Is there one that's... Well, I just read yesterday a book called Baba Yar, which is a republication of, of a classic book about, um, about Kiev in Ukraine when, when the Germans were there and the mass murder in two days of 33,000 Jewish people. And I'm going to write a book review. It's a new edition coming out, and I'm going to write a review about that for, for the New Statesman magazine. Oh, wow. So you would recommend that book? That when book. it comes out, yes. yes. It's, it's extraordinarily powerful. Mm. Very, in a sense, very pertinent um, now because of the problems in Ukraine. The history of Ukraine is is written in blood, basically, in the nineteenth, in the twentieth century. Right. History is going back to haunt it again. It's a very troubled country. Indeed, and in your retirement, what what do you like to get up to in your your spare time? Mainly, but I'm not so reading and writing. I do a lot of woodwork. I have quite a well-equipped woodwork workshop in, in my home in London. I keep bees in the back garden in London and I have four grandchildren who have the apple, apples of my eyes. Uh-huh. I still lecture and teach but I don't see patients any longer. Not in, not in England. Okay and you keep bees and so do you, is there like a Mr Henry Marsh honey? Is, is that available well, not to really. buy? I mean I really keep it just because I, I like looking after bees. So sure. I'm a very, very amateur beekeeper. When I was still working at the hospital, I used to hand out large quantities of, of free honey to the many of the third staff. And giving people honey is a very good way of running up uh, running up obligations back in return. <laughs> so it wasn't sort of cynically manipulating people, but it was a nice thing to do. And I'd always had a very, very good working atmosphere in the operating theatres and on the wards as well. Uh, and... Partly because neurosurgery is a fairly small specialty, mm. but I, I just can't overemphasize the importance of of a sense of belonging, of teamwork in the best sense of the word, where you know all the staff, not just your colleagues and trainees, but the nurses, cleaners, porters, physios, uh, and you work coherently together. And it's easier to do that in small specialties, I think, than in large ones. It's easier to do it in small hospitals. And I, for many years, I worked in the very famous sort of neurosurgery and neurology only hospital called Atkinson Morley's in Wimbledon. But 20 years ago, it was closed and we were moved to a huge office block mm. factory 
in Tooting in St George's. And you know, the atmosphere of these big hospitals is profoundly different from the, the classical old small specialist hospitals of the past. And the history of English medicine, particularly London medicine, is, is largely written in these small specialist hospitals. There was AMH for neurosurgery, St. Peter's for urology, St. Mark's for, for GI, um, and they all developed very, very skilled specialist teams with, a, with an esprit de corps, which is very difficult to reproduce in the vast modern machine hospitals that we have now. And talking of that sort of big team and giving out your honey, of course, you worked mm. as a porter yourself. And um, you've kindly invited me uh, into your home. We're sitting uh, in your flat at the moment. I'm looking around and I can see some interesting maps, some swords, some sort of sculptures. Is there, is there any that have got a particular story behind not, them? <clears throat> not medically. Half the pictures, in fact, come from my father who was a great collector. Mm. But I mean, the bookcases, the radiator covers, of all, 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 my own, all my own work. Really? Yeah. Oh. yeah. Always been good with your, with your hands. Well, I've always liked using my hands. Um, so it was, although I originally did politics, philosophy, economics at Oxford, and then did medicine in London, uh, I'm essentially a very sort of practical person. I want to change things, and I like using my hands. So... Medicine, it seemed to me, was a good way of combining sort of handwork and brain work. And then I was rather disappointed by it when I became a houseman, a junior doctor. Um, and I wanted to be a surgeon, but I didn't really like general surgery very much. And then by chance, really, I saw a, an aneurysm, an, an intracranial aneurysm operation. I'd gone down to help, I was working on an ICU. Um, and I'd gone down with an anaesthetist to help prepare the patient for an aneurysm operation. I hadn't really seen any neurosurgery as a medical student, and it was just love at first sight. Mm. I knew immediately what I wanted to do, and I never really looked back. And although life as a neurosurgeon is very painful at times, because it's such a morbid specialty with such high failure rates, because the brain doesn't heal very well, and because it's so delicate and fiddly and easily damaged, it's nevertheless, I, I have absolutely no regrets, and I look back on my career feeling I was really very very lucky and very privileged to do it. I'm talking of, of love at first sight so you are sort of having especially having read your final book and finally um, self-admittedly a quite an emotional yes. um, man yes. where, to the point where you sort of received psychotherapy before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you the sort of worst type of person actually on paper to become a surgeon? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I never had any problems getting jobs. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, in the past, you had to apply for a house job, house physician, house surgeon, senior house officer, junior registrar, senior registrar, consultant. You had to go through a sort of interview process each time. Although a lot of it was sort of old boy network phone calls from your sure. current boss to your possible next boss. Um, and I, I never had, I, I, I speak well, I'm very plausible. You know, I have this sort of standard received pronunciation accent, which was kind of de rigueur 40 years ago, they're less so now. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, 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 I suspect many surgeons are all a bit emotionally repressed because of the nature of the work. Um, and I'm unusual in the way I talk quite openly about it. But having said that, I am as certain as I can be that all the surgeons I know, with a few exceptions, 
suffer as much as I have done when patients come to harm, but does don't talk about it so openly. Mm. You obviously did PP first, yeah. um, and then you just about managed to get into sort of medical school, and you had to do the extra year because you hadn't done the. Well, that, that was very years. lucky because it was the Royal Free Hospital, which used to be for women only, um, and then by the time I went there, it was about fifty. 40% men, but it had a tradition of taking in graduates, a small number of graduates, without science A-levels. Um, I mean, now we have accelerated graduate entry schemes, but it was actually it was very unusual, and that was because the dean was this absolutely terrifying woman, Dame Frances Gardner, generally known as Fanny, who actually had gone into medicine late herself, and she was sort of sympathetically inclined to people in my position. And it was the last year, which they then abolished, of an old-fashioned course called First MB, which was a sort of crash course in A-level science, about A-levels. It was very mm. intense for one year. And then you went straight into the second MB course. But do you think that, you know, if they hadn't have done that course or you'd been one year later, you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have got into medical school? Do you well, think I now... I don't know. We... I mean, I, I would have had to have gone to a, what was then called a tech and done science A-levels, sure. it could have taken two years. I was luckier that my father and my first wife were supporting me financially. Um, and then I'd have to try to get into medical school. Um, I had a very good degree from Oxford and that probably helped as well. Do you think though that any sort of Henry Marshes that are of the future slip through the net of, for what we look for in, in medical school? I know that I'd, I'd hope, I would hope, I would hope so, I'd hope so less now in that there are accelerated graduate entry courses. Mm. Um, and I, I'm a great believer in that, because I think if you decide in your 20s, after a certain amount of experience of the world you want to do medicine, it's probably a more long-lasting vocational decision than if you kind of drift into it. And it's very clear from that that Adam Kay book, but he didn't really, he wasn't really suited to being a doctor, you know. No, it no, sort no. of drifted into, I didn't like his book personally. Um, all that's very honest. Um, so there's an interesting book called Only Human, I think, by a psychologist called Elton. I don't agree with all of it, but she, she basically counsels unhappy medical students and young doctors who are finding it difficult. And in fact, I understand most of what she says, most of them really are people who probably shouldn't have gone into medicine in the first place, you know, mm -hmm. family pressure, things like that. And when you're a teenager, you can't really know what it's going to be like. And of course, it is It is quite tough. And they're not tough in the way people realise. What didn't you like about Adam Kay's book? I felt he was laughing at patients rather than with patients. Okay. I felt it was a bit misogynistic. Um, a lot of the jokes I'd heard before. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it wasn't a direct account of things. And also, you know, he gives up, he abandons medicine because he gets very upset when a, when a woman dies in childbirth and then the baby dies as well, which is obviously terrible. But it wasn't his fault. And the fact of the matter is if we're going to go into medicine, particularly if we're going to go into one of the high-risk specialties, and obviously in Guyana he is, although the incidence of disaster is low, you know, you have a, cert you have a certain toughness. You have to mm. accept, and for me, what's special about medicine is failure. <clears throat> because, you know, all our patients die ultimately, and however good we are, we're going to lose some patients avoidably, 
we're going to make some serious mistakes. Um, and you have to accept that and live with that and not be burnt up with guilt or regret, but make the best of it in the sense of being honest to yourself. And above all, when you're a senior doctor, you know, admitting to this to your colleagues and juniors, so they won't make the same mistakes you've made. Uh, mm. so, and that's the, real, that's the really difficult part of being a doctor, is coping with things when patients don't do well. And that sort of and success is bad for us. Success makes us vain and complacent. But mm. the real challenge, you know, operating isn't very difficult, purely manually what you're doing with your fingers. Um, but but dealing with the emotional side of it, particularly after sur after well both before and after the operation, dealing with your patient and their family is and your colleagues. <laughs> colleagues yeah. we all know surgical departments where they're terrible the tensions between the consultants, particularly surgeons, I think. Um, you can divorce your spouse, you can't divorce your colleagues, at least mm. in, not in this country, in America, where I've, I've had a lot of experience there, not actually clinical work, but lecturing and teaching, and I've taught a lot of Americans who came to work in my hospital in London. Um, in America, there's a lot of movement. You know, people are moving from hospital to hospital all the time. In England, on the whole, once you've got a consultant job, you're there for life, and if you try to move, people say, well, you know, there must be something with the matter with yeah. him or her if, if, they, if they want to move sideways as a consultant. So you're stuck with your colleagues. And if you don't get on with them, if you're not a good colleague yourself, you certainly won't have good colleagues. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of departments. So it's bad for training, it's bad for patient care. Above all, it's bad for your own mental health. You mm -hmm. should walk in, you should go to work you know, because most doctors, we love our work, particularly surgeons. I mean, surgeons aren't work shy, you know. We yeah. want to operate. It's yeah. a serious addiction. But you should go to work, you know, with a spring in your step and feeling positive about it, as I always did when I went into the old Atkinson Mordits. But going into the huge machine factory office block I ended up in was, was more difficult to maintain that sense of deep, deep personal commitment. Sure, and talking of becoming a consultant and uh, neurosurgery in particular, I've been told that if, as a medical student, if you know you want to be a neurosurgeon on day one of medical school, it's already too late because there are just so few training places and bottlenecks. Is that is that the case? Is that well, what you see? What well, I don't know about, I was rather do sceptical about children. <laughs> mm school kids who want to be neurosurgeons mm -hmm. um, so I, I was always rather unimpressed and I still had a say in selecting trainees which I didn't in the latter years um, but uh, neurosurgery is bad there's a huge number of of fully trained accredited trainees at the moment without jobs to go to They're, I mean it all the bottleneck will resolve in time but I thought that's at least 10 or 15 years away, and they've had to cut down the number of training posts. I mean, I'm not sure of the figures, but I think career prospects in neurosurgery at the moment are, are very bad. Indeed. I, I'm, why is that going on? Because don't we need neurosurgeons? No, I think we've got, we got enough, I think, probably. Got enough. The answer. Okay. Um, and they expanded the number of consultants, they expanded the number of registrars, uh, and excessively. Mm. Um, and of course, this is a problem now, but the uh, consequence of the European Working Time Directive and the increase in the number of juniors, surgical experience has been hugely reduced. I don't know if 
Neil Mortensen discussed this with you when you mm. when he interviewed. But surgery is ultimately a practical craft. You get better the more you do, the better you get. I mean, yes, you know, in time you realise the problems are all about the decision making. That also is about experience. Um, I mean, years ago now there was a study done comparing trainee trainee work and um, hours before and after the European Working Time Directive. And it was something like before then, the so-called senior registrar on being appointed to a consultant had about 30,000 hours of operating. It's dropped to 9,000 or less. And that won't change in the future, markedly. So what this really calls for is you have to have a change in attitude. I went into the profession, a very keen, egocentric, well, like, not say very ego, yeah, pretty egotistical, ambitious individual. I saw, you know, the surgeon as a heroic individual. Mm. I left clinical work in this country with a totally different attitude, seeing surgery as above all a collaborative exercise and ideally a collaboration between consultants. You know, um, actually, that's very difficult to achieve because. Made an awful lot of assertions. You've got to be ambitious. It's a balance. You have to find a balance between being fiercely ambitious for yourself and being a good team member as well. And that, that's very difficult. But given the greatly reduced amount of operative experience, both for trainees and for consultants now, you, we really have to develop you know, a different mindset of, of doing things together. If you have you should operate. You should do operations jointly. Consultants should do mm-hmm. operations jointly, particularly if they're long and difficult ones. And that's something I started doing many years ago. And I specialise partly in doing big acoustic neuromas, cerebellar angle tumours. And some of these operations take all day if you're going to do them properly, all day and all night. Mm-hmm. And I discovered fairly on. I thought, heroic individual, you know, I'll be there. I'm a superman. Of course, you're not. And after seven or eight hours, I was not operating very well. And as usually after, at that point, you're then on the basilar artery or on the facial nerve, when you really got to be very precise and careful. And if you've been on the go for eight hours, you can't. If you, well, I couldn't. Um, whereas if you share the operation with a colleague whom you totally trust, it's absolute equality, not you know, a senior trainee. And you can go for hours and hours, one hour on, one hour off. It's extraordinary how long you can then operate if you're resting. Uh, and it, so it reduces the workload of the actual operating by 50%. And in a strange sort of way, it reduces the sense of personal responsibility by 90%. Mm. And yet the patient and family are happy. You know, they're perfectly happy to think that there are two people doing it. And I think that's a model we should really we need to aspire to for, for an increasingly large number of operations. Um, so that the experience is shared, because that to compensate for the lack of lack of personal experience, which is a problem now in surgical training. If your granddaughters came up to you and said, "Granddad, I want to be a neurosurgeon," would you recommend it to them? Uh, I would say, as I say to anybody, you have to actually spend time in a neurosurgical department to see the reality, because the reality. <clears throat> is a lot of brain-damaged patients with anxious relatives, poor prognosis, um, 
you have occasional triumphs, but you also have some terrible disasters. Um, and it's rather different from the sort of mythology of what brain surgery is like. And you gain, if you're going to be a good neurosurgeon, a lot of the time is spent talking to families, mm. <laughs> explaining bad situations. Um, but if you, I mean, I think neurosurgery is something where you do it if, if you get bitten by it, if you just have to do it. Right. If you feel, well, I'm not quite sure, well, don't do it. Because it is, I think it's emotionally very demanding. And the risk is you can become a sort of a rather diminished person because you become detached. And so many of your patients are, in effect, like sort of subhumans because they're damaged. Mm. Their brain is damaged. And it's, you know, you no longer see patients as equals. We all tend to look down on patients anyway. Do you feel a diminished person? I feel a much more complete person now that I'm no longer doing neurosurgery. Sure. Because I'm not having to divide the human race into us, me and my colleagues and staff and them, the world of patients. Do you look back on Henry Marsh, the, the neurosurgeon, as a different person than the Henry Marsh you're speaking to now? Yes, in this, to the extent I, I operated on... Well, I used to operate four days a week, but my main operating days are Mondays and Wednesdays. And I, I lived near the hospital, five minutes, bicycle ride away. And I always went in to see my patients the night before the operation. And this was, I'd have had a serious conversation with them a few days earlier about risks and dangers. And I was going in the night before the op, say, hello, I'm well, you know, things are going to go fine tomorrow, just to cheer them up. And so I meant going on Sunday evening. And my wife would tell you, you know, I was as miserable and preoccupied all of Sunday because I knew I was going to have to go in and become Henry Marsh, the surgeon. Right. Um, but once I'd seen the patients and kind of reasserted, but between the two of us, we'd reasserted the bond of trust between us. I then was fine because I now was in surgical mode. So you have to make this little change. And it's, now that I'm not treating patients, in, in, I'd say in this country, because I still have been working abroad a bit and hope to continue. Um, life is a bit easier. And I'm, mm. I'm, I'm my at-home self all the time. I no longer have to put on the, the you know, brave, compassionate, calm, reassuring, self-competent persona you have to do. Because as patients, you know, as I speak now as a patient with advanced prostate cancer, those patients, we want hope, we... It's intolerable to think your doctor doesn't know what he's doing, particularly when it comes to major surgery. Um, so uh, the patients have to have this blind, irrational faith in the doctors treating them, particularly in an NHS system where you don't actually have much choice in whom you see. Um, and the problem for doctors is we have to, as I'm always saying in my lectures, there's nothing more frightening for a patient than a frightened doctor. And nobody have told me that in so many words, but you learn that immediately when you become a young doctor. Um, and all, all, all doctors are having to act and pretend, particularly when we're young to a certain extent, because we often are anxious. And if you do major surgery throughout your career, as I did, you're, I was always anxious before an operation. But then, I mean, anxiety and excitement are two sides of the same coin. The difference being if you feel in control it's exciting. If you're out of control, it's terrifying. And then the anxiety, then the excitement becomes fear and anxiety. Um, so we have to pretend to pay, we have to hide our feelings and patience to some extent. 
Um, and of course, the best way of doing that is hiding them from ourselves, which is why I think many assertions are slightly emotionally, slightly repressed in a way. And I'm a bit unusual in being open about it. Maybe because I've had psychotherapy in the past, maybe just my, that's me, and I went into medicine late and have never entirely identified with the medical profession. Sure. What What do you mean you've never uh, fully identified with it? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 silly because obviously I'm a, I'm a surgeon. I'm a doctor, but I just always felt a little bit of an outsider, you know, because I went into it late. Because I'm a I'm a bit of an intellectual, and most most surgeons aren't. Mm. Perhaps, but no, it's it sounds a bit vain. So I, you know, I'm not going to pursue that very far. Sure. Um, now, from reading your books, I'm going to take a, a leap and say that you're not a big fan of hospital management and hierarchy. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I don't like bad management. Mm, what is bad management? <laughs> bad management is where the people in char- in, notionally in charge are never seen. Um, they have no personal relationships with the people they're in charge of. Um, I think I got through about eight chief executives in my 35 years working at St George's, you see that occasionally when there's a new chief executive you meet them once and then you never see them again unless you're in trouble, which I used to get into occasionally. <laughs> um, and I mean, yeah, they, they, they'd have sort of, you were invited to sort of, the chief executive would talk, talk to all the consultants, but nobody ever went to these meetings, I certainly didn't. Um, and so the management remote and it's very hard because the problem is NHS management are basically appointed to save money. I mean, that's it really. They're there to cut costs. And although in theory you can measure the efficiency of health economists tell us, the efficiency of medical treatments with if you use quality analysis, things like that, in practice it's very difficult. And on the whole, when the government talks about efficiency savings, they simply mean cuts or moving right. money money from one area to another one. Because it's so difficult to measure the quality of care, you know. Mm. Um, so I, I, I have one or two managers who were quite pleasant, but I, I scarcely ever saw them. And one knew perfectly well that, you know, the work, the work went on despite, you know, they seemed almost irrelevant. Um, and when I started working as a consultant at the old Atkinson, I was just had one manager, <laughs> and it seemed to function perfectly well. And now, of course, there are many more. But having said that, I'm not aware of any good evidence that the NHS is any more bureaucratic or less efficient than other healthcare systems. You know, and as it is, the cost of management is a very, very small proportion of the total NHS budget. So. Um, Although I make fun of some of my dealings with managers, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not going to sort of diss them all as a matter of principle, because doctors need managing, doctors need regulating. You know, if you left it up to the doctors, they'd spend the entire national income on healthcare, but the population would all die nevertheless sooner or later. Mm. It's, it's a question of balance, as of all these things. Of course. And from reading your book, and finally, and you, as you mentioned here, you have yeah. been diagnosed with advanced prostate cancer mm-hmm. from reading the from reading the book it almost felt like it really you sort of really struggled with that and looked back at maybe your life and were I don't know confused or it, it felt a very personal reading that and I, I wasn't quite sure where your mind was at when you were when you were writing the, it. I mean first of all I was I went through a series of 
mm. emotions. Um, I, I was, as like most people are, I, I was shocked <laughs> and surprised. It was very silly because I've been dealing with cancer all my professional life, but that's human nature. And it's not, I mean, I always knew that being a patient was a pretty wretched experience, partly because my wife is an anthropologist and writer and has Crohn's disease. And always made it clear to oh, we've been to second marriage, both of us, but we've been together for 24 years. And I hadn't really quite taken in just how being a patient is a demeaning, humiliating, disempowering, frightening experience for most of us. And it is, and it's the disempowerment, which is something I knew in principle, partly also because my son had a brain tumour when he was very young and he survived. It was one of the factors that drew me to neurosurgery, but maybe less than mm. one might think. Um, and a lot of what goes on in hospitals is essentially about suppressing patients and their anxiety, because anxiety is contagious. And we all hate anxious patients because they make us anxious. And the regimentation of patients is very similar in sort of psychological, sociological terms to prisons and so-called total institutions like that, where, where patients' freedom and individuality is curtailed for the convenience of, of the staff. Um, and I always knew that. Um, but what struck me in the early weeks after my diagnosis, and I didn't know at that point, I had this crazy PSA of 130, mm, yeah. which is sort of in theory on paper a death sentence, and only 4.3% of men have a PSA as high as that, and most of them are dead within five years. And I didn't know initially whether I had, which I statistically should have had, was disseminated disease of bony mets and all that stuff. In the event, the scans eventually came back showing I had no lymph node involvement or, or mets. So I may be, I probably will be a while alive for a while, though I suspect the disease ultimately is incurable. Um, though it becomes a question, do I die from something else? You know, so sure. It makes analysing the literature difficult. Is this, did this old man die? from the prostate cancer or with the prostate cancer. Mm. It can be hard to tell. But during that phase when I didn't know the results of the scans, I was very frightened and very anxious. And I suddenly remembered far more patients I'd totally forgotten. And I start my first book with this wonderful quote by the French surgeon, René de Riche, um, all surgeons carry within themselves an inner cemetery. And it's a place to which they must go from time to time to contemplate their mistakes. It's profoundly true. And I don't know any surgeons who don't agree with this statement, however how big the cemetery is, I don't know. But I was very struck. I roused the cemetery that was in a sense much bigger sure. than I'd thought. I had lots of, you know, my, my, some of my patients never leave me. I can just immediately think of a whole series of patients I feel bad and sad about. Although personally I've come to terms with it in a sense but they never leave you. But during that initial period, when I didn't know if I only had a short time left to live or not, I remembered far more patients. And I thought, it wasn't that I thought, oh, I've only now do I understand what it's like to be a patient. It was rather that, and I just was full of doubt. I didn't know. I, I'd, I'd like to think, as we all do as doctors, I like to think that I was a kind, compassionate doctor most of the time. But when I remembered all these other patients, who obviously would have been as 
frightened and anxious as I then was after my diagnosis, I thought, well, actually, I don't know. Mm. You know, I don't know what I was like. And it's one of the great difficulties about being a doctor, again, something which nobody ever spelled out to me, is patients, we never, patients never dare to criticise us. I and mean, yes, there's litigation and complaints weeks or months later. But in all your infinite number of face-to-face -face interactions with patients, um, we talk a lot to them, obviously, and we never know whether we do it well or not. Yes, your, your generation now, fortunately, gets some teaching and communication, mm. uh, 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 which helps, without a doubt. My generation got none, and you just sort of watched senior doctors mm. and imitated them. If they were bad, you imitated them bad, and bad yourself, and if they were good, you were good. Um, but patients never criticise us, and how can we get good at doing something in terms of being sympathetic, finding that difficult balance between being honest and giving patients hope, between being realistic and being, between being optimistic, all of which are very important things. It's very hard to learn because you won't get feedback. And oh. these sort of meaningless appraisal process of getting patients to tick checklists is, is pointless. I'm going to start work as a junior doctor in August. How can I be a doctor so that my patients don't feel embarrassed, disempowered, and how can I take that until the point where I'm a consultant? Well, um, firstly, sit down as often as you can mm. when talking to patients. Sitting down on the patient's bed is in itself a reassuring, kind gesture, mm -hmm. which patients will respond to. Never appear to be in a hurry, even if you are. Okay. Um, and ask for help. I wish I'd asked for help more in my career, both as a junior and as a trainee. Um, and inevitably, some patients you'll feel more sympathetic to than others. Inevitably, some you like. <laughs> and some patients we don't like. Patients can be very difficult and demanding. But just understand how there's such a huge gap. It's such an asymmetrical relationship. Um, sure, you know, we have to hurry patients up, you know, when you're doing an outpatient clinic. Most patients love to talk ad nausea about their symptoms. Yeah. And you have to learn politely to hurry them along and concentrate on what for us as diagnosticians and treating doctors are the important points of the history. But as it, just try to treat patients with respect. It's a great opportunity which you and I are going to lose when you become a doctor. When we're students, it's a, there's not that great barrier has not yet developed mm. between us and patients. And when we're medical students on the wards, it's really the last chance we have to try to see things from the patient's point of view and talk to patients and get them to talk to us. Once we're a doctor, patients will only tell us what they think we want to hear or they don't. And again, one of the big problems about talking to patients is they only, when you're very, particularly it's very serious news, they will only take in a small part of what you say. Um, and I'm amazed when I meet former patients, as I still quite often do, at sort of literary festivals and things like that. They will say, they'll quote to me various things they say I said. And I say, oh, yes, yeah. But actually, I don't really say that. Yeah. You know? I was saying that at a dinner a couple of weeks ago by a former patient. It was the 10th anniversary of his 
pineal tumour operation, which fortunately went very well. And I was keeping on trying to sort of nudge him to say, but really, you know, Henry, you've been very kind and sympathetic. But no, uh, it sounded like I'd been very, <laughs> very sort of brusque and matter-of-fact. I mean, he was very happy because the operation went very well. So, you know, you just, we just don't know mm. what we're like. But you need to, again, particularly, again, you can do it when you're a junior doctor. Look at the way the seniors talk to patients and think, is that how I would want to be talked to, or if it was a member of my family? You need to look at it critically. But the simple advice I said is just sit down, take your time, try not to be in a hurry. And if you're having to actually break bad news, which you probably won't be yet at your stage, except actually there's very little to say. Mm. When talking though, when explaining, I mean, in neurosurgery, as I said earlier, you spend an awful lot of time having bad conversations, particularly with families because the patient's usually unconscious. Um, and often the news is so terrible, like the person you love is going to die or they're going to be left very disabled. You know, there's not much more to say, but then you just have to sit there, hopefully in a room, rather than behind curtains on the ward. Always mm. try to avoid having serious conversations in public places or in corridors. Um, and just sit there, and the family will be so stunned. And just by sitting there and looking sympathetic is often a large part of it. So in other words, listening to patients is hugely important, although it's, it's difficult. You know, one's busy, one wants to get on with things. Sure. But all those, I'm sure you were told all that when you were having your communication training. Yes, indeed, yeah. yeah. No, it's good, although you did make the point uh, that I didn't realise is that all of that is done with actors. Obviously, yeah, 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 people yeah, that maybe yeah, have yeah. actually uh, had bad news broken to them. So I, I didn't see that because I, I never. I, I, some, at one point, when they, when Brown and Blair were wonderfully throwing money at the NHS, I was told as because I spent so much time dealing with patients with cancer, I would have to go on a communication course. I, blah, 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 I said, but actually, I thought I'd rather instinct. In the event, by the time I turn came up, they'd run out of money and it stopped. Oh, but some of my colleagues, and this was of actors, pretending to have brain tumours of light, and my colleagues said, well, actually, they were very good, you know. Right, they, yeah. They were just consultants um, assessing actors pretending to be patients, and they said, actually, it was, it was we were quite good, yeah. better than you might have expected. And after your <clears throat> diagnosis of, of prostate cancer, I'd like to read you a quote from mm -hmm. and finally, and it says... I sometimes look at my hands and think about all the things I've done with them and how one day they will be cold white hands of a corpse, uh, like the cadaveric hands I love dissecting as a medical student. When I read that, it felt like you were saying, you were almost saying goodbye, especially the start. It felt like you were saying goodbye to everyone who maybe you can't have a personal relationship with. Is that the case with this book? It obviously ends in a bit more of a positive way. Well, I, the book was written over the course, course. of the disease and um, both I was coming to terms with it and also things looked a bit better when the, the radiotherapy and the hormone therapies were, were taking effect. Um, but he was, and finally, he was saying goodbye to my career as a surgeon. Um, and, yeah, so, no, I'm not, I'm not dying yet, if, if that's what you're saying. And I try to correct that idea because a lot of the media said, oh, you know, dying surgeon and all that. But um, 
But it, we all have to face it. So I'm almost 73, but none of us live forever. We're all in a, like most of us, in this all bizarre state of denial where we know we're going to die sooner or later, but somehow think it won't be me. <laughs> somehow we'll go on forever. And of course, over-treatment is a huge problem in modern medicine, particularly in America. And partly that is because as doctors, we find it very difficult to tell patients and their families, well, probably there's nothing much more to be done. And it's so much easier just to, you know, recommend the next round of chemotherapy or another operation, things like that. It takes, you know, it takes guts to not to treat somebody and say, and to put the burden on your shoulder. And in neurosurgery, there are a lot of decisions like that, where they do treat every severe head injury, or if you do, you're going to generate an awful lot of very disabled, damaged people. Uh, and if you're, a, in my opinion, a good neurosurgeon, you will try to avoid that, mm. which means sometimes saying, no, let the patient die. And that's getting more and more difficult also now with the NHS, because intensive care is now run by intensivists, there's more and more of a separation between the the, the, the clinicians who actually deal with the fallout, the damaged patient at the end of it, and the intensivist was go on treating and treating and treating, um, whereas a neurosurgeon might be better to say, well, actually stop, but it's very difficult now. Do you have any particular regrets from your life, but be those professional, personal? Did that, did well, there, there's, a, there's a vast pile of regrets um, of all the patients I failed, mistakes I made, the end of my first marriage, although my first wife was right to end the marriage, I handled it very badly, it brought out the worst in me. But I mean, that's life, and I mean, I don't know, you, I think people are pretty odd, they didn't have regrets about mm. it. Yeah, now I brought up my, neglected my children of my first marriage, although I have a very good relationship with them all now. Um, no, what I, I'm, my overwhelming feeling, both when I thought I didn't have much, more, much time left to live, um, simultaneous to that sort of panic and sheer primitive childish fear, was feeling, well, actually, I've had a very interesting life. You yes, know? Yeah. I've been very lucky. I've done a lot of things. Marsh, you have no right to complain. <sighs> and I thought of all my many patients who died, many of whom are really quite young, because I spent, I did a lot of brain tumours and often there were young people, with children who were desperate to live long enough to see their children into adulthood. And I thought, no, you've no right to complain. And I do, although I know at the moment the NHS is struggling, but I, I was just lecturing to medical students two, two evenings ago here in Oxford. It's a fantastic privilege to be a doctor. I mean, mm. it's, for me, and like for most doctors, it's so interesting, and that's because People are so interesting, patients are so interesting, and you have this privileged, ephemeral access to other people's lives, which is like, unique. I can't think of another job where you'll meet so many people from different strata of society, from different ethnic backgrounds. St George's is, is in Tooting, which is quite a sort of South Indian ghetto, but loads of immigrants. And of course, immigrants are almost all ambitious, brave, driven people. They all have incredibly interesting stories to tell. Um, so I, I, although I find out patients incredibly tiring, you have to work, I mean, operating is 
refreshing if an operating day as well. You bounce out of the operating theatre feeling really well. I'd get home on Thursday evenings having been doing outpatients all day, NHS in the daytime and then a private clinic in the evening. I'd get home feeling absolutely knackered because you actually have to use your brain <laughs> when talking to people. But it was so interesting. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do think, you know, again, you get a lot of instant respect for being a doctor and, and deference, um, which you have to earn. As I said earlier, our patients have to believe in us. And it's easy to be corrupted by that and thinking you're better than you really are and to start telling yourself various stories. Um, but so we have this automatic trust from our patients and we have to work to deserve it mm. uh, and not to take it for granted. I'd like to cast your mind back to <clears throat> when you were diagnosed with prostate <clears throat> cancer. You got the incredibly high PSA yes. as well. Um, if you, I'm sure you were thinking at the time about maybe, for lack of a better word, your legacy or mm. possibly what you wanted to leave with people. You've always yeah. had the luxury of being able to publish free books now. Yes. But in a, could you summarise, you know, if Henry Marsh stood for something or wanted to say something, what, what would that be? Ask for help. Ask for help. To ask for help is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. It means you understand your limitations. Um, I'm always rather sniffy about all this airline safety stuff and relating it to medicine. Mm. But I recently read a very good book by Matthew Syed called Black Box Thinking, oh, which yes, talks yeah. about some of these yeah. iconic plane crashes which are due to pilot error. And I then realized, I got it. I mean, the point is with these iconic plane crashes, highly skilled, highly intelligent, highly able people can make terrible mistakes. Mm. And the same applies to doctors and par excellence to surgeons. And if you accept that, although some aspects of the WHO checklist are a bit silly and I, I think it could be done better in different ways, um, the way we reduce that risk is, I don't like the word teamwork, it's been corrupted in the NHS, but seeing what we do as a collaborative exercise as surgeons. And of course, as surgeons, everything we're doing is basically being developed by other surgeons before us. We're part of a great tradition, mm. which is, again is a wonderful thing to be, to have, to be part of the great brotherhood and sisterhood of surgeons. So I, I'm asking for, you know, humili the humility and modesty, which I didn't really have when I was young. Although at the same time, you have to believe in yourself. So it's a sort of balance. It's a balance, you know? sure. It's a balance, as of all these things. And with near the end of your uh, of your final, but you talk about um, assisted dying. Yes. If the people, if there was anyone listening to this podcast, you know, you talk about the MPs or yes, the palliative yes. care doctors that are against assisted dying. Yeah. What would you say to them if you could be in the same room as them? I would say go and look at the countries where it's legal, and please show me evidence that it's causing problems and elderly, vulnerable people are being coerced. Mm. into asking for help killing themselves please provide some evidence because that evidence just doesn't exist not, it doesn't happen because now because of it not being legal you've had to ask a friend sort of yes I've got, I've got a suicide kit of, of sorts but I worry that might not work I don't really want to go to Zurich or to Dignitas 
I could afford it, fortunately. Most people can't, of course. Yeah. I mean, at least one person a week that goes to it goes to Europe from this country, but it costs at least 10 grand, something like that. Mm. Um, no, please provide evidence that all these hypothetical objections are, are actually happening. And there are many countries now, and these countries which have adopted assisted dying, subject to strict legal safeguards, they've been looked at the evidence, you know, this is not jumping into it. Nor is assisted dying suicide on request, and you have to jump through a whole series of hoops, and you can, if you want, you can make the hoops as <laughs> difficult as, as you, you like. like you know. Sure. So evidence, please. Medicine is all about evidence. If you have a new drug, a new treatment, you know, you want evidence. I mean, some people have died because of COVID vaccination. In fact, sure. my wife has a friend who developed serious myocarditis as a result of COVID vaccination. Now, it's a heart transplant. You know, wow, yeah. we, but we accept that because it's a greater good. Mm. And I think the same essentially utilitarian calculus applies to assisted dying. The problem is the opponents to it in this country, although they won't admit it, most of that is faith, faith-based. We're not talking about reason mm. and evidence. And that's why it's, it's a difficult conversation. And can you leave our listeners today with uh, one anecdote from, from your time as a surgeon? One that really sort of sticks with you. Well, there are lots, but the one I tell often is when I once, with a junior, he was doing the op, I was, I was taking him through it, so it's my responsibility. There was an operation on a man's neck for a trapped nerve. I mean, not major, major surgery, but risk. And we managed to operate on the wrong side. This is big days before the checklist. Now, it could have been very easy to hide the mistake, and I know quite a lot of surgeons I heard about or saw hide similar mistakes operating on the wrong there's a particular problem with spinal surgery there was was side rather than level Um, easy to hide because scan after surgery wouldn't make it very obvious which way it operates it's a midline incision it's not like taking off the wrong leg (laughs) and I thought well I'm not going to beat about the bush so I actually told the patient and I I sat down beside him and said look I've got some bad news for you and he said what's that Mr Marsh and I said well I've gone and done the wrong side. I didn't blame my junior because I was was leading the operation. Um, And he said, oh, and he thought about it for a while. He said, well, that's right, Mr. Marsh, I I quite understand. It's easily done. I put put in fitted kitchens for a trade and I once put one in completely back to front. So just promise me you'll do the right side as soon as possible. Uh, And I suppose the moral of that story is that, A, there's a lot of luck involved (laughs) in surgery. And B, if you are honest with patients, it's amazing what you'll be forgiven for, if they feel you care. And when I'm asked, how do you manage complications? They say, well, the management of complications starts as soon as you meet the patient and the family, when they walk through the door of the outpatient clinic. How somehow or other you convey to them that you care for them. And part of that is being honest, so they feel you'll be, how can you trust somebody who isn't honest? So paradoxically, you know, an honest doctor admits to making mistakes in some ways is more trustworthy mm. than one who doesn't. Um, so, yeah, care, if, you care, if you genuinely care for patients, um, it is extraordinary what, what patients will, will accept and forgive you for. Well, that's something I'm certainly going to take away from today is to ask for help and, yes. and, and, and be honest with, yes. with my patients. And it's, that's a lovely note to, to end on. And as I said sort of before we started recording, I, 
I went to one of your talks before I got into medical school and read Duna Ha and put out my personal statement. So for me personally, it's been a great honour to speak to you. Frank, so thank you for a, agreeing. It's been a pleasure, Frank. Thank you to Henry for taking the time to speak to me today. Uh, and just to say his books are all available to buy online now. Thank you so much for listening. This was the final episode of the Surgical Society podcast season one. I really hope you enjoyed listening and all the guests that we've had on. Thank you.